Welcome to Emotional Savvy, the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. If you're ready to increase your confidence in conversations and conflict, deepen your self-awareness, expand your connectedness, and enrich your relationship with yourself and other humans you care about, and even those you wish you didn't, you're in the right place. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to Emotional Savvy. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, the Relationship Help Doctor. And today I want to talk to you about a very important thing. It's something that we don't like to think about very much. It's something that we really don't want to own. And it's not something we love to admit to because we have to be particularly vulnerable to admit to these things. So today I want to talk about guilt and shame and toxic shame. These are three different things some very closely aligned and they're very important to understand and i wanted to help with that a little today because many times these things that if we don't understand them and we don't dive into them they are constantly affecting the way we feel about ourselves of course but they're also affecting the way we engage in relationships and whether or not we can be assertive and whether we believe we deserve to take up space and draw breath. And for some people, when you really dig down deep, you're wondering if you deserve to take up space and draw breath or if anybody cares. And that's because something has happened to you. You didn't do that. You didn't make that up. Something has happened to you. And that's why I want to talk about these three things, guilt, shame, and toxic shame. So let me just define them a little bit before we go on. Guilt is you made a mistake. Or you may say that to yourself, I made a mistake. Shame is when someone else says to you, you are a mistake. But toxic shame is when you internalize what that person said to you and you start saying to yourself, I am a mistake and you start living from that place. And that's toxic to you. And when you get into that place, it is so difficult to get out of. I know I've helped many people out of that place. I know it's difficult because first of all, it's very difficult to admit that you got there. And as I said earlier, you didn't get there by your own steam. That's a message you were given over time, probably started when you were very young. Because when you have toxic shame, you're reliving things that have been said and done to you from a very early age. And that's on other people, but it ends up residing in you if you're not careful. And I want you to have hope. You can, in fact, get rid of toxic shame. You can stop shame in its tracks. And certainly you choose whether or not you made a mistake or not. Guilt to me is a verdict. It is not a feeling. Guilt is a verdict. I did or I didn't do something. But my goodness, we've made it into a feeling. Like we're walking around feeling guilty. Don't do that. You did something, you don't like it, fix it. Let go of it. You did something, you don't like it, you can't fix it, apologize for it, let go of it. 
don't walk around feeling guilty and don't let anybody else make you feel guilty. Because in truth, nobody can make you feel anything. They can suggest something, but you're the one who decides to have that feeling and keep it. And as soon as you recognize you don't want it, you can give it away. But if you have had toxic shaming in your life, if somebody has been telling you over and over again, you are bad, you're not worth my time, you are incompetent, you are incapable, I don't know why I had you, I didn't want children anyway, that was my mother's favorite one, uh, all kinds of things, messages that you've been given, it can translate into a general suspicion and mistrust of other people. And so you keep a low profile, you don't feel safe around people, this is sad. It's sad and unnecessary because you're an adult and now you can change that. No matter what those people said to you in the past, that was their problem. They made it your problem. Let's give it back to where it belongs. That's how we give up shame. We give it back to where it came from. Not so easy. You know, I'm not suggesting for one minute that it's easy because it's deeply ingrained, but you can do it. And I hope you will, because when you have toxic shame, your self-esteem suffers so badly. Some people even get to the place of self-loathing and, and that's awful. Just a chronic sense of, I don't matter. And you do, you matter. And you need to know that you have the power to remember and act from and demonstrate in every moment that you matter. You know, you've probably heard about this thing called the imposter syndrome. That's where you try to behave as though you know something or you are something. And you probably are that very thing. But there's a piece in you that quite doesn't believe it. You know, you think, well... If everybody knew me, really, they wouldn't believe I'm that good at it or that I'm that competent. And so you have this imposter syndrome, like you are pretending to be the good person you are, or you're pretending to be the talented or informed person that you are. And you're not. You really are that person. But when you have been shamed, you may have that imposter syndrome and you can overcome that as well. I had it. I know what I had to go through to overcome it. And I can help you do that too. And when we have toxic shame, along with it goes anxiety and tension. Oh, so much. And, and we feel victimized. And the conversation in our head, if we get to the toxic shame part, that conversation in our head is so destructive. And we're the one who's now shaming ourselves. Not just hearing that out loud. Would you want to continue doing that? I don't believe that you would. And I know for sure you didn't choose to start it. But where the power lies for you is in deciding to stop it. Another way that this toxic shame shows up is that when you've had a parent, particularly a hijackle parent, and you know, I talk about hijackles all the time, those relentlessly difficult, toxic people in our lives that constantly want to hijack relationships for their own purposes to make themselves feel better and then to scavenge them for power and control all the time. And if you've had a parent like that, highly likely they wanted to do a good job of shaming you because that gave them power and control over you. But the good news is now as an adult, you can say, no, I'm not having that anymore. I do not have any evidence in reality for the fact that I am not 
worthy of drawing breath and taking up space. I am a capable person. I get up in the morning. I do my work. I have a job. I pay my bills. I look for a job. I interact with the world. I take care of my children. I can drive a car. I am a capable human being. And we have to start there. You know, many times I've told groups, starting in 1984, I remember it very, very clearly, when I used to have big groups in my home every evening. And we would work on these things. And everybody got a mirror. I had a hand mirror for everyone. And say, now look deeply into your own eyes and say, I love you, I accept you, and I approve of you just the way you are. Mwah! And everybody laugh. And I said, no, you got to throw the kiss because you need to have that emphasis. I love you. I approve of you. And I accept you just the way you are. Mwah! And that's a great way of starting to overcome the shame that you actually do it yourself. You say, no, I don't see that in the mirror. I see a person that I love, that I care about, that I accept, that I appreciate, that is worthy, worthy of love, worthy to be cherished, worthy to be heard and known and acknowledged and accepted. And you start by doing that work within yourself. You give that gift to yourself. And when you do that, things start to shift. When you actually recognize that you can give yourself that gift, you don't need those other people. Yeah, they're lovely if they give you validation. But if you have experienced toxic shame, when somebody tells you you're wonderful or lovable or how much they love you or how much they appreciate you, there's that little voice inside going, oh, no, 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 no. But when you do some work, and I'm going to give you a couple other ideas today, when you do the work, you can start believing those other people you can accept that validation and that's the beginning of change that's the beginning when you begin to take up space and draw breath as a fully capable worthy lovable human being in your own right no matter what anybody told you before this moment so very very important because people who have lived with toxic shame are much more susceptible to becoming addicted to alcohol or substances. They want to escape. They want to numb out. They just want to get away from this horrible feeling of loathing of themselves. And I'm sure you haven't got to that point. But maybe there have been moments. And if there have, forgive yourself and move on. I want you to be gentle with yourself. Gentle. Be kind to yourself. Be loving to yourself. Do you know, if you treat yourself well, you will be much more likely to teach other people to treat yourself well too. And one of the places we have to start treating ourselves well is in our self-talk. When I give large seminars, I often have people repeat this after me, and you can do it too. I solemnly promise to never say anything about myself, that I do not want to be true, especially when I talk to myself in my head. Got it? I solemnly promise never to say anything about myself, that I do not want to be true, especially when I talk to myself in my head.
Okay. So every time you hear yourself criticizing yourself or downplaying something or actually making yourself small or insignificant or taking away an accomplishment or not being able to receive a, a compliment, step up and say, no, no, no. I'm going to accept that. I'm going to believe that. I'm going to take that in because this person is talking about who I am right now. Not who some toxic parent told me I was or some bad person in the community or somebody who had an axe to grind and decided to grind it on you. No, I'm going to believe right now the good things about myself. You may have had a mother like me. If I ever said anything good about myself, she said, don't you get conceited, young lady. And that became part of who I am. And why wouldn't we say things that are good about ourselves? It's not conceited. It's a fact. You do something well, say that you do something well. You appreciate something about yourself, tell yourself you appreciate that. You have that right. It's not conceited or bragging or arrogant or any of the things my mother would have said it is. It is simply a fact. And you are the author of your experience as an adult. No matter what those people said to you, no matter what they did, you are now the author of that experience. So I gave you that little exercise to do. Then be compassionate with yourself. It's what I call inclusive compassion. Include yourself in the compassion. You're probably really good at giving compassion to others, but do you include yourself in it? Are you kind to yourself? Are you loving? Do you give time and attention to yourself? Do you engage in great self-care? Do you spend time with yourself alone every day? I hope you do is an absolutely great thing to do. And then get some help. Work with someone like me. You know, we can work together. Just go to forrelationshiphelp.com. F-O-R relationship, H-E-L-P.com. We can certainly work together to work on this. But get help. Work with somebody. Somebody who can say to you, let's see what's the basis of this in reality right now. Where did those old voices come from? We can identify them, but let's get up to date. Let's be talking about where am I right now? What is it that I am doing right now that is good, that is wise, and that I can acknowledge myself for? Start there. Because if there's been any shaming in your life, you need recovery. And you can give that back. Hey, mom, I mean, I can say to my mother easily, although she's passed long ago, hey, you might have needed to shame me. I didn't need to receive it, and I reject it. I reject it because I know who I am now, and I'm willing to accept the truth about myself as I see it now in a healthy fashion not as the gift she hoped she was giving me to make herself feel better. So I hope this has been helpful. It's another way to get some emotional savvy. Look, guilt is when you make a mistake. Shame is when someone tells you you are a mistake. But toxic shame is when it gets inside you and you start telling yourself you're a mistake. We can stop all of that, and I hope you will. I hope you will take this to heart. Start thinking about it. Listen to my YouTube channel for Relationship Help. 
get in contact with me join one of my groups on facebook you can develop greater emotional savvy and i'm here to help i'm dr roberta shaler and i'm so glad you were with me today and i look forward to talking and working with you soon savvy i'm so glad you're here with me and with my guest and if you're just joining us for the first time you are so so welcome and if you have in fact been listening welcome back today my guest is jeff jones and i had the opportunity to meet jeff at a conference recently we got to talking and i thought this is going to be a great conversation so welcome to the program jeff thank you very much roberta you know, many things we talk about here on Emotional Savvy, and one of the things we haven't spoken much about is the whole issue of addiction. Not the addiction to drama that I'm usually talking about, but this is, in fact, substance addiction. And uh -huh. Jeff is an expert in this area, so I really wanted to have Jeff here so that we could talk about it. So let me tell you a little bit about Jeff. He's a therapist, an addiction counselor, an interventionist, isn't that a great word? And now a family recovery coach working online with families with an addicted loved one. So if that's you or that has been you, you will hear gold for you today. He's expanded the context of addiction and created a three-phase program that empowers families to safeguard their loved one in an addictive cycle or recovery while they engage in the process to stop that addiction cycle in this generation. And he says after putting it online and wrapping a user-friendly online community around it, he's moving toward his goal of empowering families to connect with one like-minded people, family-specific resources, and expertise when they're ready and not everybody's ready at this at the time you want them to be are they jeff absolutely true absolutely yeah, yeah we we would all like to say hey come on we love you get with the program we can fix this let's do it right now and the person is like what i don't have a problem so yeah. what do you do at that moment well um I think one of the biggest challenges here is that historically families have been seen as part of the problem. And so my sense is families really try to do their best over time and they end up trying a lot of the same things. Um, they like having different survival strategies on how to deal with the chaos. And, um, you know, part of what the family does, and they do this because the culture does it, but it's like this myopic focus on one person. And then people get into like one-on-one -on -one conversations and trying to force or manipulate someone to become motivated mm -hmm. and that rarely works um, oftentimes it contributes to more um, argument hard feelings pain um, and rejection I would think yes big time 
Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that happens when we when we do that is we separate that person from us in the sense that you're different, you have a problem, I'm okay, and I'm going to help you fix yourself. Right. And there's an isolation and a marginalization that you take a big risk if you have that conversation in the wrong way, I think. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. what's a good way to start so that you can reduce the isolation or marginalization? Yeah, well, so with what I've organized online, I think a very good way to start is for people to start to educate themselves about some of the natural patterns, some of the dynamics that happens in families with addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so j- just general information, I think, is a really good way to start, um, specifically information that doesn't in- include um, labels and pejorative language and um, assumptions, but um, an explanation that includes um, behavior. So what I have is, a, is, is what I call the spotlight diagram, which is like a big circle in the middle of a page. And then at one o'clock, three o'clock, five o'clock, some lines coming off there with smaller circles. And then at about seven o'clock, uh, um, another circle kind of snuggled up to there. And then at about 10 o'clock, um, a circle kind of off to the side no line, no nothing. And so I talk about each one of those as um, strategies that people are using to try to, one, deal with the problem in front of them, another, try to cope with the internal impact to them, and, you know, how to stay connected to it as a family and to compensate for the addiction. Mm -hmm. So these are like um, survival strategies. I talk about them as roles, not people. So people can go in and out of roles. Some, some people can be fixated in one role for a long period of, of time, but when people really understand kind of the larger picture, it's easier for them to go, oh, this is what's happening for me. And when they see what's happening for themselves, that's where their power is, is to own that. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, in some ways it can sound so simple. Well, I think when we begin to see diagrams, it's useful to many, many people because we we get kind of focused on our view (laughs) and our feelings that go with our view. And then when we can see something and say, oh, look, there are many points of view here and everybody has feelings around it. And then all of these things have to be considered. That makes a big difference. And it also takes the burden off me because there's all this, right? Like I've had a very close friend. She married a, a fellow who... She didn't know. I mean, she thought he just enjoyed a social drink after golf. But it wasn't very long before he was coping with life by beginning to cook dinner with a drink in his hand 
And I was often a guest in their home. So by the time this gourmet meal arrived an hour and a half later, we're having all this banter from the kitchen. And by the time he sat down, we were talking to a different person. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This wonderfully brilliant attorney had turned into this, oh, kind of strange, quirky, argumentative guy who just put a fabulous meal on the table. So it was like we lost him. You know, I said to my friend, wow, you know, that guy that you love just disappeared. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And how are you going to cope with that? And she said, well, I have to cope with that every day. And I said, but how do you cope with that? I mean, how can you have any intimacy in the evening if the next thing he's going to do is fall asleep? Um, <laughs> this is your life going by. And so it was, oh, years and years and years she, she tried to manage with that. And I think part of her liked it because she didn't have to deal with him after, after dinner. But, you know, I think that it was a big disappointment in the beginning that she'd lost everything that she got married for. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I like to say is that um, you are living with a stranger, exactly the way that you framed that story. The, the person is different. Mm-hmm. They change, and it and they're different because their brain is impaired, as I'm sure you know. Right. Well, and you know, yes, from a neurological, psychological, uh, all those points of view, yes, it's impaired. But it was impaired just in his ability to listen, or his willingness to listen, or to entertain a divergent thought that wasn't within his frame of mind at the moment. So conversation that could have been interesting just, well, became argumentative. Right. And so there was a lot of subject changing that went on through a dinner. Yeah. And then, you know, that lovely time at the end of dinner where you're having a coffee or whatever you're doing and dessert and you're all pushed back from the table and having a great conversation it wasn't there. Everybody was endeavoring to get away from the mm. table. Mm. And so there was loss all around, mm. you know, certainly loss for his wife who had to stay there, but loss for the rest of us because we knew the potential for this wonderful conversation. And yet it wasn't available to us at all. Right. And, and that's, something that he did to prevent intimacy, I believe, as part of his coping strategy. Because over time, as his drinking became an issue, he also was addicted to cigarettes. So he had to go to the basement to smoke. So what did he do? He started hiding all his bottles while he was smoking. And so he started being able to have an ironclad reason to go to his man cave, Mm. to do what he wanted to do. And so the relationship dissipated even further. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. So in a family situation, there were children involved. Oh boy. Yeah, blended family of not not babies, you know, kids who were cognizant of what was going on. And so really frightening. So where would you jump in with that kind of situation? If that if my friend had come to you and said, This is what's going on, what could I do? What would you have told her? Because I know that you have three ways 
that a family can ensure a loved one's recovery success, but where do you start? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, when someone calls me and like with the backstory that you just gave, one of the first things that I would do is try to understand what just happened for someone to call. Because that initial reaching out is so very hard. It takes a lot, like a lot of things have happened before someone is willing to pick up the phone and make a phone call and talk to a real person like myself. So one of the first things that I want to do is I want to, I mean, it sounds very simple, but I want to listen. I, I want to understand, like, was there an event that happened? And, um, you know, some of the things that I would want your, like, the example of your friend to know is, like, when that person, in this case, her new husband, is impaired, it isn't the time to have any kind of conversation to try to figure anything out or to ask them to do anything or to present another um, side of a conversation or try to make a decision. It, it's yeah. just, so timing is a very, very big part of it. And um, getting the whole family on board, like one-on-one -on -one conversations oftentimes don't end well. And they just, um, one after another, after another, and then there ends up being kind of a history of um, conversations that didn't go well, like a history of, of failure. And when we, the more family members we can get who have an understanding of, of what's going on, and they can kind of get on the same page or get on, on the same get in the same boat and start understanding, kind of getting a clear perspective where they all understand the same information. Because what happens in families with addiction is that different people, well, the person who has the addiction, a lot of times they'll have different conversations with different people. So there's a lot of mixed messages. There's a lot of confusion. One person can be thinking one thing. It's like just getting everybody together and people sharing information and to have one understanding. So a start would be what I call like a recovery message, which is like um, includes the past, the present and the future. Mm -hmm. And the past could be a very general, simple kind of thing could be. In, this family has suffered a great deal in the past. Right now, we see that you are really struggling with drinking. I personally am really concerned for you, and I would like, and then it's whatever the group would like that person to do in the future. Okay, so great start. Because this is a long, long, long process for this many. This is a process, not an event. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's definitely a marathon, not a sprint. A yeah. sprint. So I just want everybody to know I'm talking with Jeff Jones, and he can be found at the 
thefamilyrecoverysolution.com. Thefamilyrecoverysolution.com. So if you're like my friend, or maybe you're like me with a friend who is looking for a solution, then go and visit Jeff at thefamilyrecoverysolution.com. So welcome back. I'm here with my guest, Jeff Jones, and we're talking about addiction. We're talking about addiction recovery and what are kind of the first steps. I mean, obviously, we're going to have to talk again about more steps down the road, but at least we're getting a good entry point today. So we were just talking in the first half about why timing is important and how you can create a recovery message. I like that, what you had to say. So using the example that we were using, Jeff, I want to ask a question. What happens when you are sitting with the person and maybe with his family and the person says, I sincerely don't believe I have a problem? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And that happens, I think, all the time. Um, one of the, the group has power. One on, on one, the addiction always wins. That's a little cliche thing that I have said over and over again. But when we go around the room and give every person an opportunity to speak about what they've seen, what they've heard, what their concerns are. Um, and then if they still say that, it's like I always go to the family. And so what are we going to do with this discrepancy here? And um, it's like the family may want them to go right away to an in, inpatient facility or something, and they may not want to do that. So it's kind of like understanding some of the different options. And, and it's, a, it, it's a negotiation. And, and here's an example of what happens a lot. They say, well, I can handle this myself. Oh, yes. I, I can do this. I'll go to an AA meeting or something like I that. I can quit any time, right? <laughs> I mean, how often have we heard this? Like yeah. all the time, really. So, you know, whatever they can agree to, like if if they say, well, I'll go to an AA meeting, I will um, be looking around at the family and saying, is anybody willing to go to the meeting with them kind of thing? So I I really want the family to um, be engaging with that person, reaching out to them. And so if one person can do it on Monday night and someone else can do it on Tuesday night. and I have a question, Jeff. I didn't think that people without an addiction could go to an AA meeting. Um, boy, that's a good question. I'm not an AA person. Yeah, um, I, I, I think so, you have to leave your friends at the door there. I don't, I, I really don't know, Roberta. I, I can't um, say, but oftentimes what I see when I'm in that situation is, and the group in, includes um, family and anyone really who loves and cares about that individual. And when I hear someone say, that they have a friend who also has experience with um, 
you know, um, substance use or recovery or something like that. And, and they say, well, they're not in, in recovery. So I don't think they'd be good. I always say that'd be great. <laughs> you can both be in there. recovery. <laughs> be, because they know them like the individual may be able to tell stories and, to their their family and make rationalizations but to their friend no way right and i can hear another great part about that because there may be somebody who has a little bit of a problem or has um of course it's not always like pregnancy i mean it's either you have a problem or you don't but um i could see that somebody could have secondhand benefits by going on behalf of somebody else yeah so if I'm an enabler, perhaps I'd sit down and have a glass of wine. It would take my friend. This is exactly what happened. She knew that she could only have a glass of beer, a small glass of beer before the meal, and a glass of wine with the meal, and then she would stop. But he could not stop, would not right. stop, whatever the right. correct term is. So, you know, there maybe from that point of view she could imagine herself using your scenario uh saying well i drink every night too so why don't we go together how would that work that would be fine i'm i mean even as his partner yeah what i have seen with families is oftentimes when one person starts to make change it can be a snowball effect and other people will make changes. And actually, that's what I want. The so more do, you, do you do it from a family systems point of view? You absolutely. You think that's good? Absolutely. Okay. So, but, you know, getting back to your question, it's like I want family members to kind of to reach out, to engage with that person and to have some kind of accountability. So, like, if we're meeting tonight um you know, and they said well i can handle this myself i'll go to you know three aa meetings in the next week i i would say well can you go to five um and whatever they agree to i'm gonna go okay so we're gonna meet again in a week and then i actually you, you know check in to like did you go to three or five or whatever they said and if if you didn't like what's up with that what got in the way yeah and if they did then then great you know um i i i firmly believe not every individual needs inpatient treatment on the other side of that if this goes on the longer this goes on the more it's going to be hard to get out of this without inpatient treatment. So I really want to encourage your listeners here to um, be aware of warning signs, take them seriously. And, and, and this community that I have alluded to this online community, it can be a very nice way for people to confidentially start to get information 
and look at warning signs, talk about warning signs, listen to other people talk about warning signs so they can make best decisions in their own family. Great. So if people go to the familyrecoverysolution.com, they'll see the online system, will they? Yeah, it's called the Deep Community. The Deep Community. And it's it's $50 a month, and they get a username and password, and they can start learning some things and looking at some videos, and if they see something of interest, they can send that username and password to someone else in their family, say, hey, look at this video. After you look at it, I want to have this conversation about what happened two weeks ago when we were having dinner together or something. Oh, that's great. I think that's a wonderful thing. I have an online community too, because I deal with the people who are the partners, the exes and the adult children, co-workers, friends of yeah. the relentlessly difficult people in the world, the toxic people in the world. And so it's a wonderful place off Facebook, although I have groups on Facebook, but off Facebook, because it's a hundred percent safe. You go there, nobody knows you're there. Nobody can right. even find out you're there. That's impossible. So I, I'm so glad you have that. And I was reminded of something that I've said to many of my clients, because my clients are all over the world. And I've said, I'd rather see you sit in an NA or an AA meeting in resistance than seeing you outside the door. That's beautiful. Right. I'm like, just get yourself in the door. Like, just sit there with your arms folded, your teeth gritted if you need to, but be on the inside of that door. Because when you recognize that you're not alone, that you're not the only one who has decided to cope with life that way, when you see people in different stages of recovery, you can kind of like take a breath for the first time that you're not like, oh, I've got this problem. Or I'm in denial of my problem. I don't have a problem. And then you stand up and hear somebody who's doing exactly what you do every week saying, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> right? Right. So yeah. I, I think it's really so great that you have an online community. So let's remind people it's called The Deep Community. And you'll find it on Jeff's website, thefamilyrecoverysolution.com. And don't forget, it says T-H-E before familyrecoverysolution.com. Or you'll end up somewhere that you won't find the deep community. <laughs> so <laughs> important, all these little distinctions on, on the web. And, you know, um, there's a lot of stigma and shame associated with this. And we've only got a few minutes left, Jeff, but... Can you just talk about how we can help people ease into lifting that a little bit or having them realize that we're not seeing them that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the whole idea with the deep community allowing people to sign up with an alias um, and initially people like so i have two community chats a week the wednesday night one is recorded so initially people can just listen to the recording the next step of trust building is to actually show up um, on wednesday night in the community chat and then their name like the alias like donald duck or something would show up and they can still just listen and then they can type in a question 
and that's the next step of trust building. And then they can turn their microphone on and ask a question, and then they can turn on their webcam and we can have a conversation. Essentially, what I'm trying to do here is to allow people to kind of go through this incremental stage themselves and actually there there's always going to be some people who are a couple steps ahead or behind mm-hmm. wherever you're at and ideally i see this building social capital for families to really have a stronger voice inside the family and outside the family well we got to talk offline about that cuz i've got some ideas for you uh, but you know I just want to really applaud you for doing this because it's giving someone approximations of disclosure. And what you just described is that lovely thing. First, I can have an alias. I can lurk around. I can just listen. Then when I become a little more comfortable, Donald Duck can speak up and ask a question. And maybe if I get even more comfortable, then I can go on camera. And then maybe I won't have an alias anymore. I'll be able to say, I am me and I am dealing with an issue. And I'm just delighted that you can now know me and I don't have to pretend I need a wall in front of me. Yeah. It's it's lovely, Jeff. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Yes, you're so welcome. So thank you for being with me. There's so much more to talk about. Maybe we'll do this in a few months. Yeah. Again, that would be great. So my guest today is Jeff Jones. He is a therapist, an addiction counselor, an interventionist, and now a family recovery coach. He works online. You can find him at thefamilyrecoverysolution.com. You can become a member of his deep community, and I hope you will. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. You know you can always find me at 4relationshiphelp.com. Slide over to YouTube, see my channel at 4relationshiphelp.com. Or if my membership interests you, go to 4relationshiphelp.com and click on Focus on Forward. We'll talk soon. Stay tuned and stay with us. We always have great guests. Talk soon. Thanks for being here for today's episode of Emotional Savvy. If you want to deepen your emotional savvy, make shifts in your relationships, and enjoy life and relationships more, work with me, Dr. Roberta Shaler. Get my books, enjoy my courses, or work with me directly. You can do that by visiting 4relationshiphelp.com, F-O-R, relationship, H-E-L-P.com, and subscribe to Tips for Relationships now. Don't miss a thing. Be empowered this week with more emotional savvy.